Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Paranormal Peeps podcast. And to my right, I have... Jamie. And Josh. And me, Elisa. And for today, we have a great story to tell about the Salem Witch Trials. Mm, a familiar one. Very, actually, uh, very much more in the news lately, though, right? Well, look at the time of year, for one. Yeah. It always comes around this time of year. It does. But it's widely known. Well, and especially with Hocus Pocus 2 coming out, or that it exactly. came out. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of wish, <clears throat> which, which, <laughs> which, which, um, thoughts on that movie? I mean, obviously, I think it goes without saying, it's not as good as the first one, but what were your thoughts, Elisa? Oh, I, I, I think I just had my hopes up too high. Um, but also I'm watching it. I have to think about this. I was watching it as an adult versus a kid. Cause when I, mm-hmm. when it came out, I was the same age as the little girl was. Yeah. So I was like eight or nine years old when it came out. And so it was a super fun kind of a spooky movie. Right. Yeah. But as an adult watching the second one, I was like, they could have made that way scarier. Even for kids. I felt yeah. like they could have made it. It was too family friendly for me. Well, right, because over the years, like we become more desensitized to certain things as well. And so it's not as even I my mean, yeah, even my kids didn't think it was yeah nearly scary. as exciting as the first one was. Well, the first one wasn't scary either though. No, but it, it was more intense, I felt like. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say there's a lot more intense scenes in yeah. there. But I mean, I still loved the movie. I still loved seeing the witches come back and Absolutely. all of that. And I loved that how it ended and the sisters reuniting and things like that. Like I loved that. That was really cute. Did you see after the credits where they were singing? Nope. What? After, after at the end. I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> the- why don't you explain Jamie? Yeah, but no spoilers. <clears throat> I mean, no, true. I mean, <clears throat> if any of our listeners haven't yet seen it, I don't want to like, that's true. If you haven't seen it, or if you have seen it and haven't watched all the way after the credits, watch all the way after the credits. There's mm-hmm. a 30-second scene in there that shows... I don't even think it's that long, but... It's not long, yeah. But... Yeah, check it out. The I guess the part that I found confusing with all of it was just how it all started. Because at the end of the first movie, the witches were destroyed by the sun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then some guy makes a black candle... Yeah, he got the thing from the spell book. Right, but then they brought it brought them back to life after they were destroyed. It seemed weird. Like cuz even in the first movie they weren't that's fully what, destroyed. That's what my kids were wondering like, how did they come back? I thought they were destroyed. I just had but, another thought. So when the was it he's like a shop owner? Mhm. Warlock, I'm sure. A warlock, yeah. Oh, well, he must have been because he got it out of the book and only those that are like witches can actually see what's in the book. Yeah, so he must have been a warlock. It's weird, though, because when they gave him the stuff to go and try to get all the ingredients and stuff to make their potion or whatever, he seemed completely clueless. Well, I think he did on purpose because he knew that he was going to get in trouble in the end no matter what. So he's trying to delay. <clears throat> I guess we're kind of spoiling the movie. We're kind of shooting holes in it too, a little bit. So, <clears throat> anyways, but but that's <laughs> on. but that's what we do though. I mean, like, in that sense, right? It's like we, we watch bring... a movie that we had moderately high hopes for, mm-hmm. and we kind of let down, and we just 
say why we were kind of let down by it. But at the same time, the second time I watched it, it was way cuter. It was. I really enjoyed watching it the second time. Mm-hmm. I think the part that was the funniest of all is when they had to go find their brooms to fly on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and Mary cute. comes out with two Roombas. <laughs> yes. That was cute. My kids loved that part. So like that, that part was fun. Um, before we get into the the full topic, though, there's uh, so a little bit of housekeeping we need to do. So, in four days, we have our second public investigation. Yes, at Benson Grist Mill, there are still tickets available. Tickets are twenty dollars a piece, and it's on the twenty ninth of October, which is a Saturday. Starts at what seven? Seven. And it's going to be super fun. We're going to, we want you to come in your costumes and we're going to do a costume contest. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And you get to investigate in your costume if you, if you so choose, if it's, you know, works for you in that avenue, you like, you can investigate in your costume. Like very few times you get to actually dress up and go investigate. Yeah. And we're going to do costume contests. We are. We will have prizes. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. And we will be serving uh, hot cocoa, apple cider. We'll have some snacks and variety of things there. And we'll uh, have a people. warm warm heater. So we'll that... have two warm uh, porch heaters. Yep. Those tall ones. So don't worry about being cold. You can always come warm up. And we're also going to have a vendor there. We're going to have Lavinia's Eden uh, run by a friend of ours um, that is a part of uh, Broken Wings Paranormal. She's going to be there selling her... Uh, little baubles and stuff. She does some beautiful wire wrapping of stones and crystals. Um, she has all sorts of neat stuff. She can tell you all about them. But yeah, she'll be there too, selling some of her wonderful creations. Yep. And you know, and then last week we had our first public investigation. We did. And it was it, really fun. It was a lot of fun. And that was at the Petite Neat Museum in Payson, Utah. One and- of my favorite places. I've I've been really enjoyed investigating there. I've only ever been there twice. Yeah, this being the second time, but yeah. it's always been a fun place to investigate. I've been there hundreds, <laughs> like literally. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> well, it does help that they have a dance studio in the basement <laughs> that I used to go to like two, three times a week. But no, it was it was a good night. I think that um, the people that came. I think that they had a great time. Yeah, I think they did too. And they were all newbies. They had never been on an investigation mm-hmm. Which before. was super fun. They were asking a lot of questions, which is great. Yeah. Like they were respectful. It was really, really fun. Yeah. yeah. They were a great group. We mm-hmm. actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. So thank you all who came. That was way fun. Yes, and we hope to see you at a future investigation. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back. And now on to the main event in this case. We're going to talk about more about witches. Yay. Which, honestly, like, Salem Mass, like, and if anyone brings up that name, the only thing that any of us can ever think about is the witch trials. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it only went on for a year. But there were actually three total witch trials that happened in Salem. Yeah. The first one being the most popular, or the well, I should most say the known. most most known. Mm-hmm. I would say popular in the in the fact that it became like the basis for the the uh, play, the Crucible. There was a movie made about it. Mm-hmm. It's been featured in obviously Hocus Pocus one and two. Uh, it's been it was uh, in Hubie Halloween. If you haven't seen that movie, it's on Netflix. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's not that great. But game is much. But the place has been, you know, thought about to be haunted. And like if you if you Google it up, if you look at it, the first three pages are all ghost tours. So like there's a lot of paranormal tourism that happens in the town. Well, I think it's kind of expected with how tragic mm-hmm. everything was and how innocent people were. And so it kind of makes it really famous. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It's it's also one of the oldest still occupied towns as well. Like mm-hmm. we're talking about things that happened, you know, in the sixteen hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> and which for the United States is <laughs> it's pretty old it's for old the US. For us. Yeah. And then you go over to Britain, they're like sixteen hundreds, like that ain't nothing. We got stuff back from like a thousand. Like, <laughs> nothing. So getting into the the whole witch trial piece, like you have to kind of to look at the time frame, right? So Europe went through their big witch trials in like the 1300s and through the 1600s and, you know, tens of thousands of witches or people who believed to be witches were put to death at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much winding down in Europe, but in the U S it hadn't really hit yet. So with the Puritans living in, in that area. So you have a very heavily religious group of people. And then there was a smallpox epidemic that happened. There was, you know, issues with people between, you know, warring families and those things. And so, like, you get this environment that now becomes kind of ripe for something to happen and and kind of take off. I think everyone's in upheaval, you know, like everybody's sick, people are dying, and people want to accuse other people of things, and you can do a lot of things without being caught. And I, and to me, that was part of the reason for the witch trials, I think. Part of the reason was so that other people could use that as an excuse to take advantage of others. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, look, you got something I want. And, all and I- now you're a witch, and I'm going <laughs> to... And now I get to take it. And now it's mine. Yeah. And that's... And- and that's the thing is like there were lots of people that ended up being in prison because of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we know of the people that were executed mainly, but it it like in a short period of time, it like expanded greatly across the whole area. And it wasn't just Salem. It was Essex and there's like two other counties that it involved in. And so it it wasn't just one small area. It was a whole three-county area that this whole thing was going on. And so, like, if you didn't like somebody in the next county over, you could just accuse them of being a witch. And we found that it's it doesn't take much to be accused. No. no. It really didn't. It really didn't. <laughs> no. Um, here's the interesting thing, though, is there's a group of, of researchers that t- were trying to find a reasonable explanation, like a scientific explanation to it and they actually came up with a uh it was published in 1976 it's it's a fungus called ergot it's found in rye wheat and other Mm -hmm. and other cereals yeah so when you ingest this it can cause symptoms such as delusion vomiting and muscle spasms ah Mm, that makes sense yep and 
what's interesting is like I believe it has to, like in order for this fungus to grow, it has to be a, a like wet, like it has to be a, a, moisture of some kind. Right, it's a, a very wet year, and supposedly the year that this happened in in, in 1692, it ended up being a very wet spring, mm-hmm. and so that this fungus could have been growing on these on these cereals, which would have caused this to happen. I'd like to think that this is the reason behind it. I don't think so. I think it, there's something much more nefarious behind all of it. And how do you it, mean? It could be the case for some, you know, because at that point it was like anybody who acted strangely right. was considered a witch or could be a witch mm-hmm. or claimed, you know, people would say that they were a witch. So, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple reasons how this all came about or um, why people were accused. Right. This is why I said, I don't think it was the wheat or the rye in this, in this Avenue. So it started in January of 1692. Okay. So you have a nine-year-old Elizabeth Parnes or Mm -hmm. Paris and 11 year old Abigail Williams. And so she was the daughter and niece of Samuel Paris, the minister in town, right? They began having fits including violent contortions, uncontrollable outbursts and screaming. And a local doctor took a look at them and said, they're bewitched. Great doctors, right? That means they had no idea what it was. <laughs> exactly Pretty much. what it means. <laughs> I don't know. So let's just say, yeah, they're bewitched. Exactly. Shortly I... after, some other girls in the neighborhood started having similar symptoms, right? So that, that would point to that piece, right? But... All of a sudden, these girls come forward, and we've got arrest warrants issued for three people. The Paris's Caribbean slave, uh, Tituba, and then another homeless woman by the name of Sarah Good, and an elderly Sharon, Sarah Osborne. And the girls are the ones that accuse them of being witches. Oh, goodness gracious. So they said, yeah, we're bewitched, and it's their fault. Do They're you, the ones that did it to us. Do you think that those girls weren't like kind of coerced into saying those oh, things? Oh, I'm sure, especially at that young of an age. Yeah. Because kids are so trusting of their parents mm-hmm. and of adults. Yeah. That I'm sure their parents or someone that they trust was enabling them this. to yeah. believe. Feeding them names. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And giving them stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those three witches were brought in to the magistrates, Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, and they were questions. They were questioned. Even while their accusers were in the courtroom putting on a grand display of spasms, contortions, screaming, and writhing, and Good and Osborne denied their guilt, and Tituba confessed. But Why? That is a very good question. Well, I think it probably was because at the time it was like, all right, well, um, you confess or we're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And so either way, you're going to die, yeah. right? But the last ditch effort is to say that you did it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have nothing left to lose. To save your neck, you're trying to. Mm-hmm. Right. Literally and- save your neck. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly. Well, and, and she actually did. 
save her neck in this avenue. But what she ended up saying was that there was a man in it's like she said that there were other witches in town mm-hmm. and that there was a man in black that came to her and asked her to sign a book in which she signed the book. So say she's basically saying Satan came to her, asked her to sign a book, and she, she signed did, her soul. Signed her soul away. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's strange that she went to that level. Now, of course, she is one that wasn't I do believe she was not actually executed. So she also said that there were she had images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds. Tweety bird. Oh. Right? Yellow bird. <laughs> Just like the man in black, Johnny Cash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, of course, she implemented several other people. She said there were several other witches who were just trying to destroy the Puritans. So so we took it even further. She took it even further. Yeah. Which here's what's very interesting is one of the ways they used to determine if you were a witch or not. See if they float. See if they float. Mm -hmm. And if you drowned... You weren't a witch. You, yeah, you weren't a witch. <laughs> and if you float, you're a witch and we're going to hang you. Or stone you. Or stone you. So yeah. die one way or die another. Exactly. Right. Well, she would have known this at the time, right? Mm-hmm. But remember, she's also from the Caribbean. Right. What did she know how to do in the Caribbean? Swim. Voodoo? Swim. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, voodoo? <laughs> hey, they have practices over there. They do. No, they absolutely do. But yes, yeah, swim. Right. So if they threw her in water... She was hosed because she was going to be able to swim or float. Couldn't she just like put on a good show? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, Blow but- out all the water out of her lungs and then drown, sink and just wait for everybody to go hold your breath and then come back up. Or just sink and then swim away <laughs> underwater. <laughs> just, just escape. She, she goes like half a mile down, suckers, <laughs> keep swimming. <laughs> so, of course, all of this happens, right? And... They got these three women in jail. So now in May of 1962, the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts, whose name was William Phipps, he ordered an establishment of a special court of Oyer, or to hear, and Terminer to decide on witchcraft cases in Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties. So it was provided over two judges, including Hawthorne, Samuel Sewell, and William Stoughton. The court handed down its first conviction against Bridget Bishop on July 2nd. Boom. And she was hanged eight days later, mm. which was which on a place that's now known as Gallows Hill. Makes sense. And we're going to be talking about those judges periodically through this podcast. But mm. yeah, the, it is, they're quite interesting people. These, these people were major players in Huge. the Salem area. Or in the, in the, at least in the greater county area. So five more people are hanged in July and in August. Sorry, July and August. Both those months had five people hang. And then in September, there were eight more people hang. In addition, seven other accused witches died in jail. And then Corey Giles, or sorry, Giles Corey, he had a different story. Uh, do tell. Okay, so the execution of Giles Corley, they call him a warlock. Let's start with George Corwin. So he was labeled as this sadistic murderer who 
thrived on torture and killing, making sure like people were were suffering before they died. So Corwin took a fancy to a certain type of cruel killing. Allegedly, his favorite method of dragging confessions out of the accused was to tie them from their neck to their ankles, by um, bending them in half until blood streamed from their nose. Like, painful. I mean... Jeez. So they're basically, they're basically upside down. Yes. Yes. Poor Giles Corey was one of the only warlocks... Like you can use quotes around those warlocks, right? Yeah, there were there were five total. Yeah, named to, accused, I guess, to be accused during the witch trial hysteria. His punishment stretched to new limits. On the eerie morning of September eighteenth, sixteen ninety two, Giles Corey's execution was scheduled to follow the accused witch Anne Putnam Juniors, and Anne was one lucky witch. However. For on the day that she escaped the death of the vengeful witnesses were so desperate to watch. Corey was not so lucky. In the months leading up to his trial, there had been innumerable claims of Giles Corey being a warlock. In June 1692, Elizabeth Woodwell and Mary Walcott, or two of the afflicted, had watched in shock as, as Giles Corey entered the Salem meeting house, despite the fact that he'd already been imprisoned. In another instance, a a ghost had risen from the dead to tell Anne Putnam Jr. that Corey had been the spirit's murderer. So two weeks before the official trial, the court had attempted to push Corey to answer the formality which started the trial. Without saying the words, by God and my country, no trial could occur. So it has to start with those words or else it, the trial can't start. So Corey refused, standing mute as the term applied. The punishment for the crime under English law meant that Corey was punished by pressing under heavy weights until the words were finally said. So until he finally exclaimed that he had done it. So you basically torture somebody until they confess. And then they die anyway. I mean. Either way, you're dead. Either way, you're dead. So after months of going back and forth, including Corey's good friend, Captain Thomas Gardner, pleading with them um, to just confess... On September 19th was the final day. Corey refused to confess to the crime, nor would he say the necessary words for the actual trial to continue. And so George Corwin adhered to the law, however cruel it was. So Corwin put Giles Corey into the dirt, leveling a flat wooden board on top of his splayed body. Then the true torture began. One by one, large stones, stones were placed on top of Corey. As a group of onlookers gathered round to watch the proceedings in an open pasture not far from the prison, while the hope was for Corey to plead guilty early on, he never did so. In fact, it is said that Giles Corey spoke only once throughout the entire ordeal. More weight, he ordered, as his body imprinted into the dirt. Allegedly, as Corey's tongue began to roll from his mouth, a sign that death was upon him, George Corwin used the tip of his walking stick and pushed Corey's tongue back into his mouth. Corey died not long after that, and his body was so brutally crushed that there was no hope for his revival. His death was the only pressing to ever occur in Massachusetts, but it is one image that we have never been able to forget. Corey's body was buried. It's called Butts Brook, the burial place of suicides in Salem's town. 
as though he had chosen to take his own life, and George Corwin, the high sheriff whom everyone despised, visited Corey's home and took all of this man's money and goods as his own. So centuries later, George Corwin is still remembered as one of the most hated men of the Salem witch trials. And so the story is just crazy in and of itself. That's why I'm saying like when people have an idea of wanting to steal something that somebody else has, mm-hmm. let's they're going to be a witch or they're going to be a warlock or they're going to be something so that they can be accused and I can go take their stuff. Yep. Get them out of the way and then just yeah. rob them. Yeah. I mean, and that was an easy way to do it during that time. Yeah. Yep. And if you look at some of the other people, right, like that are accused, you've got Alice Parker. You know, she was married to a fisherman, uh, John Parker. They rented, the couple rented a home by the waterfront, and her husband had children from a previous marriage, while Alice appears to have none of her own. She, she never had any, any kids of her own. And so, beyond the information, there's, it's hard to, to say, like, how all of that came about, like, what was their goal in getting her, getting rid of her. Yeah. But I think she was, I think she was an easy target. Here's a childless mother who you can accuse. She's kind of like one of those people that spoke her mind. Oh, very forefront. Yeah, very forthright. Yeah. And so it's like her her neighbors could claim that she bewitched them, that she gave them ominous predictions. And that's how she got executed. I would have been executed. Not saying that I can give predictions, but it's like if you people watch good enough, then you can generally tell how they're going to respond and react to certain things. Oh, yeah. And that's probably what she did. Yeah. You know, and if you have a more of a type A personality, which she probably did, then that's not any help to her either because she's just going to speak her mind. Yeah. Yeah. She's not going to mince words. Which during that time is not (laughs) very great. Like Even today, people don't like to hear it. Right. They don't. And... And this time, they, they could be like, well, I don't like the way she talks to me, so she's a witch. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if she floats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, only if they actually would have used that in this case. Like, their trial evidence was bad. Oh, yeah. Like, and we'll get to that here. In this a, in, would be in, laughable in. during our day. It just it just seems like looking at it and how things went trial-wise, it just seems like they were just making it up as they went along. Just to get through it, yeah, and to hang these people. Well, and the the challenge with it, right, is like I think I think what ended up getting to them more so than anything, right? Because for them, witchcraft was a sign of the, of, of like the, the devil, devil or yeah. devil worship, right? And so because they were so religious and anti, you know, all of that, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, look, if it's of the devil, it's evil, and we must eradicate it. Yeah, but I think mm-hmm. it took another turn as well. Well, beyond religion, just beyond. I think it went the direction of, I don't like you, power hungry, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or I want your land. How do well, I get? Re- how do I get you out of the way? Well, exactly, and I think that comes to to this this next one. Her name is Anne um, Pudator. So she was originally from uh, Falmouth, Maine. She lived with her first husband, husband Thomas Greenlit, and their five children. So she had quite a few kids mm-hmm. at this point in time. But in 1677, they moved to Salem. And then her husband died shortly afterwards. So now she's a widow. She needs to be able to support herself. She ends up becoming a midwife and a nurse. She ends up getting hired by this blacksmith, uh, Jacob. And so he was. she was supposed to look after his alcoholic wife, Isabel. Oh, dear. Right. 
So Isabel ends up dying, most likely from excessive alcohol use. Mm -hmm. And Anne ends up marrying her Jacob, who's 20 years her junior. Cougar. <laughs> yeah. Even back then. Woo. No. So, and if you think about it, blacksmithing at the time was a really wealthy mm -hmm. way to make a living. So he was very well off. Well, he ends up dying. Dude. In 1682, Third he dies. Third time's a charm. I'm just right? So now she's 60 years old and super wealthy. Dang. And a widow. A two-time widow. But at least she's not hurting for money. Well, no. But unfortunately- That comes to- Yeah, I know. Kick her in the butt. So at 70 years old, she's accused of being a witch. Oh, That's okay. terrible. I mean, can you imagine trying to- do that to our elderly. You yeah, know? it's it's not like that's so that's awful. terrible. Yeah, it's and like it, it doesn't matter what you did in your lifetime. No, it doesn't. And the, but she was an easy she was an easy target. Yeah, she had money. She was a widow. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no at that point in time there was no man to speak for her. Right. No 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 man to to back her up. Nope. And so you're a witch. Now you die. Now and we he, get your money. Now I can take yep. your money. It's just nuts. The uh, the amount of all of that that happened, right? So throughout all of this, there was a minister by the name of Cotton Mather. And he warned of the dubious value of spectral evidence, which is the testimony about dreams and visions. His concerns went largely unheeded during, this, during the trials. So his son, who was... The president of Harvard joined in on this this idea that this evidence shouldn't be used in these trials. He said it would be better that ten suspected witches may escape than one innocent person be condemned. Finally, finally, some sense, right? But amid all of the warning of the trials, nothing happened until Governor Phipps dissolved the court and mandated that the successor disregard spectral evidence. And then trials continued to dwindle in intensity until 1693. And then by May, it was over. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like, these people were tried and executed on evidence associated to dreams and visions. Ridiculous. Oh, it's absolutely horrible. So, you know, if you ever have a bad dream about your spouse or significant other or your neighbor... Obviously, it's a sign of witchcraft, and you can I'm have a witch <laughs> apparently because I've had some pretty vivid, scary dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everybody has to oh, be yeah. honest. I mean, yeah, but yikes! So, on January fourteenth, sixteen ninety-seven, the general court ordered a day of fasting and soul searching for the tragedy in Salem. So they finally got to realize that what they did was wrong. It took them. <laughs> Four years. So that's not too bad. Better late than never, but still, geez. Exactly. In 1702, the court declared the trials unlawful. Of course. And in 1711, the colony passed a bill restoring the rights and good names of those accused, granting 600 pounds restitution to their heirs. However, it wasn't until 1957, more than 250 years later, that Massachusetts formally apologized for the events in 1692. It took them a long time to get back to to saying, we're sorry. 
But at that point, Push pride. <laughs> at that point, none of them are none of them are alive of being accused. All in all, over two hundred people were actually in prison in jail, and then a handful were executed. But about twenty. Yeah, about twenty, and then the nine that that died in prison waiting for trial. Yeah, or for execution. So that's that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For living just like everybody else does, but everybody else kept their mouth shut. Yeah, you know, like they're not talking about their dreams or. Oh, it's so dumb. Oh, it's but so awful. Let's talk about some of the the sheriffs and the people that put them there. Let's talk about the high sheriff, George Corwin. So three months after Corwin stepped into office as high sheriff, he was asked or he was tasked with transporting five of the most infamous witches on July 19th, 1692. Rebecca Nurse. Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Ho, Sarah Good, and Sarah Wilds. And they were removed from jail and shoved into wooden carts, just like how you would imagine. Amidst an early morning fog, townspeople lined the streets to watch the cart rumble down the dirt roads to take or to the lake for the exec- executions. At the time, it was apparently tradition for the accused to attempt facing death in order to to both confess their sins or to prove their innocence, like we had talked about. Um, Ironically, however, the method of proving one innocence generally meant their death. As High Sheriff, George Corwin had fulfilled his duty in bringing the woman to the gallows. From there, it was Reverend Nicholas Noy's responsibility to coerce the accused into admitting their guilt. Noy's demanded one of the accused witches, Sarah Good, to confess her sins. She refused, snapping, You're a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. And with those words, Sarah Good sealed her fate. Corwin positioned them all above the lake, linking their nooses around their respective necks. Then he hanged them all, and their bodies plunged into the water. So, So, go ahead. So the minister was the executioner. Uh Uh-huh. I don't think you would find that today. No. 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 They're the ones that are there to say, do you have any last words? Can I help you through your transition? (laughs) (laughs) So fun fact about this is Sarah Good's final words would later come to haunt the townspeople of Salem when Reverend Noyes died from bleeding at the mouth. The blood vessels had popped, but superstitions, uh, believers believed that he'd been cursed by the witch. So following the executions, the bodies were buried nearby in the rocky terrain under cover of darkness. Rebecca Nurse's family took a small boat, like maybe like a canoe, up the river so that they could retrieve Rebecca's body. And so along its narrowing length the, to the nurse's land, that's where they buried her on um, privately on home ground. So like these people had... No care. Let's just throw them in a crate all together and have them go through town as everybody is seeing them. And I'm sure they're calling them names and throwing things, throwing things at them. And, you know, well, executions back then were a public affair. I know. And it's, it was like an event. It was, they would actually pack lunches, picnics and picnics and have a picnic with their kids. That's so terrible. At the gallows. I wonder if they were like, 
you can go watch your first hanging when you're eight years old, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you have to wait, <laughs> you know, like it makes you wonder. Yeah, it's definitely a much more morbid time. Yeah. So let's talk about Judge John Hawthorne or Hathorne. So he was a prominent judge of the trials and a good friend of Jonathan Corwin. He is responsible for handing down the most executions. Hawthorne had a well-documented reputation for his callousness towards those accused of witchcraft. And it's primarily because of his treatment of the innocent that they believe the house that he had owned was haunted. But he earned the nickname The Hanging Judge. Uh, Many also accused him of using his seat on the bench to commit murder, which obviously I'm sure he did. I think that's how a lot of people were. Um, Well, if you're friends with a... Essentially, let's call him a crooked sheriff. Mm-hmm. So if you're friends with a crooked sheriff, then, and you're a judge, like, you're kind of, like, helping each other out. Well, they use their power for evil. Well, yeah. And to be in charge of that many executions, hunting down the most executions, I don't know if that I, I would want to be known for that. You know? Like, that is not something that I would want to be known for. Maybe he thought he was the... The protector of the goodness of the area. Maybe he was just delusional. Well, and part of me wonders if this was just like, obviously this was a phase, but you know how like people, somebody will start a rumor and then it just snowballs, right? And so everybody's like jumping in on the bandwagon and wants to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a witch, but that person is, so if you're claiming that somebody else is a witch, then that automatically rules you out. Yeah. You know, so I I don't know. But part of me is wondering, like, how wealthy did these judges and sheriffs get because of this? It's you a, know? It's a very good question. And if there's only you know, a handful of proven cases right. of theft, that means... Usually, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wonder what, because it's not going to be all everything written down for us to know. Yeah. And a lot of it's speculation. But I don't know, it'd be interesting to find that out. So, should we go into the hauntings? Of course. And I think that's the thing, like, the most interesting thing about Salem at this ca- at this point is, like, it seems like every building in every house and everything in town is actually haunted. And it's like the things that they have are fairly similar throughout the houses. They're all about the same type of hauntings, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's start off with the Pickman house. This house is located at 43 Charter Street and was built by Samuel Pickman in 1665. Now, Pickman was a sailor much like most of Salem. The interesting thing is that this home is next to the old Burying Point Cemetery, which is the oldest cemetery in Salem. And it's the second oldest in the nation. Yeah, that's old. That is so old. Among the many people that once called Pickman House home, there was this French painter. His name was Michel Felice Cornet. And he was an artist with... Famous for his beautiful marine marine paintings, murals, and, and portraits. What's interesting about him 
is he comes over from Italy to the U.S. to the New World, and he's seeing that no one's eating tomatoes. Like they have them, like they're growing, and no one's eating them. And it's because the people in the area thought that tomatoes were poisonous. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> so did they plant them and grow them? I don't know how they were. There. Like they obviously had someone had them? to have. I wonder if the, it wasn't the Native Americans. That I think it originally... was the Native Americans that did, but I I could be wrong. Yeah, but I feel like that's what I remember. Yeah, so probably the indigenous tribes in the area were the ones that planted them, which is funny because if they're eating them, mm-hmm. wouldn't you think that they were safe to eat and not poisonous? Unless you weren't watching them eat them. Well, this is true. In order to prove that they were safe to eat, he sat on his doorstep and ate them <laughs> in front of public. <laughs> Get a little salt, a little pepper. Perfect. Yeah. Put it on a sandwich with some bacon. <laughs> so good. I just think he was eating them. Like raw, like raw, like, yes. like an apple. Mm-hmm. The ghosts in the house, right? So, according to local legend, a family of three moved into the home: a man, his wife, and seven-year-old daughter. Shortly after setting in the home, the man's mental health began to deteriorate, declining each day to the point of insanity. Wow! So he claimed that he could see and hear demons in the house. And in his struggle to fight the evil entities that plagued his existence, he became increasingly irritable. His violent outbursts would horrify his family, each one more jarring than the one before. That's scary. It's like, why not just commit him to an insane asylum or claim he was a witch? (laughs) Of course, this is after the fact, right? So one day, amid one of his manic episodes, he chained his daughter in the attic, deprived her of all the comforts she once enjoyed. She defecated and urinated in place, starving alone and frightened. With each passing day, she waited for death to release her from her confinement. Sad. Super sad. His wife was petrified, torn between wanting to protect her daughter and being too scared to face her husband, which I can get. Like This is like a, a common domestic violence situation. Right. You know, she's obviously, she put her fears aside. She begged her husband to release their child, but obviously he did not care. Eventually, the man got tired of his wife, irritated by her presence. He gathered rope, tied her to a tree in his yard. He made his way to the kitchen where he began to heat a block of wax. Oh, gosh. After the wax had come to a rolling boil, he grabbed the rusty cast iron pot, poured it over his restrained wife's head, and her end did not come quickly. She ended up ha- screaming and howling in pain for what seemed like eternity, dying a slow and agonizing death. Aww. Why weren't the where were the neighbors? That's Anybody. a very like if someone's yelling and screaming like that, you'd be able to hear them. Well, and she was a ways away. Well, he had to go melt that wax, and <clears throat> that takes a little bit of time. Yes, ma- wax melts pretty quickly, fairly quickly, mm-hmm. but still, like. She had been out there for a little bit yeah. before he came back out. And I guarantee you she wasn't just not making a peep and just waiting for him to come back. Like, she yeah. had to have, I don't know. Yeah. And it's not like people, the houses are super insulated. <laughs> it's not well, and like. And she's tied outside to a tree. She's outside screaming. I know. People, I'm sure people could hear her. Oh, I'm sure. Her sc- screams are eventually drowned out by the hardening of the wax. He went inside and hung himself. Oh, heavens. 
So, yeah. So double murder, then suicide. There's a spirit of a famished girl that can be seen often. While snapping photos in the building, visitors have captured what looks like a young girl staring out of the second floor window. Employees of the museum across the street claim to have heard disembodied screams at night, particularly that voices sound like a child. Outside from the strange sightings of the girl, pictures have been captured of bright orbs and human faces floating inside the house. So could you imagine like being in the museum across the street and then hearing someone like a blood curdling scream coming from I think like, part of you door? is like, uh, do I dial nine one one or is this <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure like the first time someone heard it, they probably did call nine one one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the cops are like, There's nobody there. Yeah. And then the next night they're like, Okay, this has gotta be a joke. Yeah. So let's talk about the ghost of Giles Corey. So there are those that say that Giles Corey inhabits the merchant. Some blame Corey for knocking over candlesticks. Trash cans are overturned. Items found out of place. Deadbolts open and close on their own. Um, The merchant's most popular spectacle must be of the lady in black. Normally it's the lady in white. Oh, no, that's coming up too. Yeah. (laughs) But so this one's the lady in black and no one is totally sure what she wants or where she came from, but they have, there have been similar sightings of her and a female spirit in a black costume with uh, blacker curls. The lady in black has even been described as being trans, having transparent skin um, as if she was like made of glass and photos were taken of the lady in black showing a full length figure with unbrushed hair and the photo was taken in like the 1980s um they were trying to take a picture of an employee um but they actually caught that image instead wow that's kind of cool uh-huh there have been multiple accounts of people experiencing a choking sensation on the second floor on the property and on one occasion a visitor was upstairs with and all of a sudden felt an invisible force encircle his throat and squeeze. Air became harder to take in, and his throat had closed up completely. When he twisted around to see what was there, he found an empty hallway, and he was completely alone. And many people believe that Corwin haunted his victims out of the witch dungeon in order to privately interrogate or strangle them in his home, and um, which is now the Joshua Ward House. But there's no evidence suggesting that Corwin did this, but visitors on the property remain wary anyway, and rightfully so, since the mere idea of being choked by a poltergeist is literally the stuff out of nightmares. Um, Or a normal paranormal investigating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So just as George Corwin's um, ghost haunts the Joshua Ward house, so does his victim Giles Corey. On more than one occasion, employees have witnessed inexplicable activity that they attribute to the warlock's vengeful spirit. The activity, such as books being yanked from the shelves, cold spots in an otherwise warm room, and candles found in pool of wax. Though the candles um, were never set aflame, they are all said to be signs of Corey's ghost that has not yet crossed over to the other side. And most peculiar is the fact that these candles are often melted into S shapes. Weird. 
defective candles. <laughs> yeah. Get a new batch. Right? <laughs> that's just that's just how hot it gets in Salem. That must be it. Mm, <laughs> must, must be. be. There's one more in this um in the Joshua Ward house. So sightings of a female spirit are common occurrences there, especially on the upper floor. It was one stray piece of paranormal evidence that um that this rogue ghost was an international stardom. In the 1980s, Carlson Rility was hosting a massive holiday party when one of the employees snapped a quick Polaroid photo and then started shaking it. And then Carlson expected to see the image of a light-haired woman enjoying the party. And then when he saw, he glanced down at something entirely different, a dark-haired woman with rough-hewn features and skin that was so pale and translucent that he had to take another look. And most assume the female spirit is one of the witches, George Corwin arrested and imprisoned and possibly even killed. The part that I think is fascinating by that is that they're like, these are the two ghosts that are here. And the, there's no real proof that it's either of them. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's where the kind of the fun part of it comes in, you know, the rumors. And that's what gets people excited. And yeah. And people assume and, and rumors start from a long time ago and stories change. So, yeah. Although I will say, though, that getting choked, like feeling like you're being choked by someone behind you and not having anybody there would probably be the most terrifying thing for someone to experience. Oh, yeah. That would be really scary for sure. If it is the sheriff, then he's, you know, he just further brings point the light of as in life as in death, mm -hmm. which I could see him haunting that place if that was truly a place that he frequented a lot. Yeah. But with, with Giles Corey, why would you want to go there? Like, what would possess you to go to that house where your known executioner live or is haunting? It's like, you want to fight him in ghost form now? <laughs> Good luck. Right? So let's stay on Giles Corey. So we have the Howard Street Cemetery, which is the fourth oldest cemetery in Salem. And there's 1,100 headstones in this cemetery. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. But there's an unmarked grave that's there. And it's inhabited by Giles Corey. What they end up saying is that you have to look for this grave. And it's, I mean, how? I, I have no idea. Like, how do you find an unmarked grave in a, in a cemetery? With 1,100 headstones. Exactly. But supposedly his grave is there and it's unmarked. The interesting thing is, I don't, and I don't think we've talked about this, but he was 81. Oh, quite old. Yeah. He was quite old. In uh, Abigail Hobbs's prosecution, she claimed that Giles Corey made her, or she, he, she implemented him as a witch or as a warlock in this case. Hmm. Which is interesting because that, you can see how like all of that just like runs around on itself. The the cemetery is two and a half acres, and it was once reserved for strangers, thought later entombed like captain, ship captain, servicemen, and Salem socialites. Captain William Brown, commander of the Crowning Shield, Shields, Brutus, was interned at the cemetery as well. So he ended up suffering in a, sh a shipwreck just off the area. 
So it's thought that he is is there as well. Hmm. So like looks like you know Giles Corey is haunting two locations along with a ship's captain. Hey, why not? Exactly. I mean, you can still go wherever you want. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not like you're you're you know stuck in one spot. <laughs> it was funny because I was actually reading this book the other day about and it's fictional and it's about this lady who can see ghosts and she goes into the bathroom of her of her job and there's a lady that is stuck a ghost that is stuck in the bathroom Aww. because she's so mad about her old boss and so i'm like that would be miserable to have to be stuck inside a bathroom all the time right like no i'm sorry but you're going to no be confined fun. to the bathroom for the rest of your eternities. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> okay, so um, let's talk about the Jonathan Corwin house. And he's one of the Salem witch trial judges that we had talked about. They call it the witch house. So the witch house is the only structure still standing today that has direct ties to the Salem witch trials. Um, since it served as the home for one of the judges who took part in the arrest, leading to the multiple executions. Um, it said that it's haunted by the spirits of innocent, of the innocent who were hung, or hung, hanged, <laughs> words, guys, words, hanged during the trials. And it's been rumored that the witch house was used by Jonathan Corwin to interrogate those accused of witchcraft. And we all know that those interrogations were not friendly interrogations. Not too far from the witch house is the cemetery where Judge, Judge Hawthorne is laid to rest, um, Old Burying Point Cemetery. And so it's allegedly that his spirit is captured on camera numerous times, and thrill seekers still visit there at night to try to catch a glimpse of the infamous judge. But nearby residents claim that wandering ghosts from the cemetery have made, a, made their way into their homes. So, which is a little exciting. I mean, I wouldn't be mad about that. I guess I wouldn't complain. <laughs> no, but an odd practice from this era was to place a shoe inside a home's wall to ward off witches and warlocks. And you wouldn't know it, but they have an old black shoe from the past owner doing just that by putting a shoe in there. And I have actually seen in other ghost hunting shows that they have found a shoe in the wall <laughs> when they were like renovating and stuff. And we all know that when you renovate a house, things, the spirits can like pick up and they don't the like activity. it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so they want to ward those off by putting a shoe in there, I guess. That seems weird. If you just, like, just put a shoe like, in there. Give yeah. them the boot. <laughs> I don't know, I guess. <laughs> but perhaps the most frightening item on display is that of an actual witchcraft doll. They call it puppet. Witches would allegedly place hexes on these dolls in order to curse their victims, and the doll in question was actually found in a different yet nearby house. It's said to be the very one in which Bridget Bishop lived, the first woman executed by hanging during the Salem Witch Trials. So one of the most often reported encounters of paranormal activity is encountering of that of disembodied voices. And people have claimed to have been touched by unseen forces as well as cold spots. 
and a few people are hearing a voice of a little girl, quite possibly the youngest accused of witchcraft during the trials, and she is four years old. Hmm. Four. That is so mean. I mean, <laughs> she's four. I don't know. Well, and how she? How can she defend herself at that point in time? You can't. Like, how are you a witch at four years old? You don't even. You're just learning conversations. Like <laughs> exactly. So we had basically from four to eighty-one. Yeah, that's a huge. Yeah. Grip of people. I mean, what would this? I wonder if this girl had maybe a disability of some sort, or maybe she had seizures, or. You know, something where someone would have to say that she's a witch or would want to say that she's a witch, but I don't know. Well, and that brings up, like, who was the accuser? Right? I don't know. Some really mean person. But this witch house was set to be demolished in 1944 to make way for widening of the streets. And locals banded together and put a stop to it by raising $42,000, which was able was enough money to pick it up and move the house 35 feet from where it currently sits. So they only had to move it 35 feet. Not too bad. But it cost $40,000. $42,000. So after two architects restored the, the residence to its original 17th century splendor, the witch house was handed over to the city of Salem at that point becoming a museum. So it's, it's been through the ringer, that house. Yeah, no kidding. It's got lots of ties to lots of different things. Uh-huh. So remember we talked about Gallows Hill being the place of these executions? Yeah. It actually wasn't. Nope. The actual site is Proctor's Ledge. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know that for a long time. No, it 2016 is when they figured it out. Yep. So they ended up, so that, that area is actually located between Proctor Street and Pope Street. So Proctor's Ledge is a quiet, unassuming area. Like it overlooks a Walgreens. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like this very nice, like genteel place where Perfect for hanging people. Exactly. <laughs> where the the Gallows Hill, it's like this, you know, it's like this Well, it had slopes. Yeah. Right. And so they, they determined that that wasn't the place. But the executions took place because they'd have to put them in those wood carts uh-huh. and haul their butts up there. Mm-hmm. And it didn't make any sense. Especially since it was like this public display of whatever, right? Yeah. And everybody came to see these executions and all that. So it didn't make any sense. So they started looking into Proctor's Ledge. And that's when they found out that it was the execution yes, site. Yes, they, they proved it. Yeah, that is neat. Yeah. That is super neat Mm -hmm. that they're able to figure that out. So local legend has it that there's a lady in white. (laughs) There she is. There she is. It was coming. (laughs) Some visitors have claimed to have caught sight of her through others. You know, others have thought they've caught her disembodied voice. Mm -hmm. Visitors have encountered cold spots, iridescent orbs. And, you know, are these the souls of the people from the witch trials? Hard to say. Exactly. Or dust. Or dust. <laughs> or dust. I yeah. mean, pollen. <laughs> it is old. With light refracting off of it. I mean. <laughs> you know, and like all of the bodies, like the people that were executed, they were just basically dumped in a crevice. 
Yeah. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Just dump them in a hole. So, you know, because they were so distreated upon death, is that enough for them to stay by? And- I mean, it's possible. I guess it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They could be like, hey, you know, I'm vengeful or this was very traumatic, which why wouldn't it be? Yeah. And I wonder how long, like from the time that they were accused to the time that they were hanged, how long that process took. Because, I mean, you could get very vengeful and bitter, very bitter. And the longer the time went on, because being in prisons and jails then was very different than it is now even. Oh, yeah. I mean, now it's like, sweet. I'm off the streets. I get some free meals. TV. Like, you got TV. You free got dental, free medical. Books. And I'm not saying that there aren't hard things in, in prison and jails, because I know there is. Um, but it's very different. Then it was like, now you're put into like this dirt floor and you get sick because you're not warm. And it's... Mm-hmm. And it's humid or or wet down there. You know what I mean? So it's Here's just some breadcrumbs yeah. to eat. Well, yeah. Look at the jail in Bannock. Mm-hmm. It was a wood cube yep. with yep. two wooden cubes for cells. There was no insulation on the walls. No, it was just logs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What well, I mean, there actually wasn't logs. It was just boards, which is yeah. even worse. Yeah. At least the log houses there have insulation from the wood. Yeah. These are just slatted boards. And then it's like, here you go. The wind goes through the (laughs) boards. Yeah. Yeah. So in talking about jails, um, let's talk about the ghosts of the old Salem jail. Ooh. Prisons. Yes. We like those. We kind of do. Those are fun. It is true that the old Salem jail was built in 1813 and that less than a single year later, the Howard Street Cemetery was founded. Tim McGuire, a local historian, and owner of Salem Night Tour informed Saul Beatrices. <laughs> this is terrible. Ugh. Good pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Just, we, we apologize for our super bad pronunciation. Just go with it. Okay, go with it. My name gets mixed up every single time somebody Pretend says it. Pretend it's right. So just, just go with it. Just yeah. go with it. Okay, for his book, Ghosts of Salem, and that back in the 17th century, the property was once the site of Gail Corey's death during the Salem Witch Trials. According to one particular gory tale, the old Salem jail was constructed with granite from nearby Rockport, Massachusetts. The granite was allegedly salvaged from St. Peter Street, and it's widely believed by ghost tour companies that the slabs of granite used were once stained with blood by the witch trial victims in 1692. Ooh, infamous. Although, hangings don't generally cause a lot of blood. No. But... Also, when you are getting tortured or, like, people are wanting you to confess, to try to get those confessions out, I bet it wasn't some nice chit-chat. No. It probably wasn't. You know. But I wonder, though, too, like, I mean, these are rumors, right? Right. Total rumors. And so it's like, after the Berlin Wall came down, people were selling chunks of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, just put some spray paint on a piece of rock and... <laughs> it's the Berlin Wall. It's the Berlin Wall. Like, how easy would it be to, to claim anything was part of the witch trials? Yeah. So in the early days of the federal-style jail, prisoners most commonly met their death by hanging. Most tally the hangings at an estimated 50 over the years. Hanging was, 
which allegedly took place in the prison dining area, because there is nothing like taking a meal as someone meets their maker at the same time. So in 1892, a little over a decade after the prison's expansion, newspaper reporters accounted for an overflow of prisoners at the Salem jail. The reason for the overcrowding, apparently, the county had recently passed an anti-alcohol law, and the drunks were now all in prison. They worried that unless Essex County repealed the drunk law, they would be forced to build a new jail. So by the 1960s and 70s, the prison was still without modern indoor plumbing and inmates were required to using five-gallon buckets as personal chamber pots. Once a week, they were given leave to use one of the two operating toilets in the whole property. This is 1960. That would smell so bad. I mean, just pooping stinks. Can you imagine diarrhea or like... No. Oh. Well, like... No, thanks. I mean, we've been to other prisons that have been like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have. And... And Like, here's a five-gallon Homer bucket. Go poop in it. And then we'll clean it out. Ooh, I would hate to have that job. That would be the most disgusting job ever. Okay. So, since the jail was abandoned in the early 1990s, sightings of ghosts have been quite regular. So those passing by the then-empty jail swore that they saw lights flickering inside, despite the fact that the prison was no longer hooked up to electrical circuits. Eerie screams have been heard at all hours of the day, and for those who are brave enough to step within the abandoned walls, often were witness to shadow people lurking in the halls. That sounds like a fun place to go investigate. I'm there. I want to go. <laughs> In the 1960s, the Boston Strangler went by a variety of names, the Mad Strangler of Boston, the Phantom Strangler, the Green Man, among others, but perhaps one name he almost never went by was Albert DeSalvo. Again, I'm sorry. <laughs> ah, that's been pretty close. <laughs> the man behind the 13 murders. DeSalvo was immediately locked up in the Old Salem Jail, then the Essex County Correctional Institute. He confessed his identity as the notorious Boston Strangler to his fellow inmate, George Nasser, who then reported the to admission his the admission to his attorney, F. Lee Bailey. DeSalvio was sentenced to life in prison in nineteen sixty seven. Though he escaped from the Bridgewater State Hospital just a few months later, he was later caught re imprisoned and then found stabbed to death in the infirmary six years later. One of the upstairs windows of the jail is not uncommon to see a shadowy figure step close to the gra- to the glass. Almost always he is seen holding a candle as he roams from one room to another, but creepily enough the floor that the spirit wanders no longer exists and is said to have collapsed years ago. That sounds cool. residual. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, kind of forming the same pattern over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And during the Civil War, Confederate soldiers were alleged, allegedly imprisoned in the Old Salem Jail. More recently, there have been sightings of spirits wearing 19th century clothing at the Old Jail. Some believed these ghostly soldiers to be the source of the attack the agonizing cries heard all throughout the night, and some linked these soldiers to the spirit with the candle. And yet, nearly 200 years later, it still stands. A posh apartment complex with people vying for entry. (laughs) Wow. 
Mark's changed. A little bit. <laughs> so, what's in your apartment? Well, my apartment is where the Boston Strangler used to live. <laughs> Can I sleep over? <laughs> it's, you know, I have never heard of a jail being repurposed into an apartment complex. No, but I mean, I'm in, you know? It'd be fun to investigate if they would let you investigate their apartments. <laughs> it makes It makes it kind of tough, though. So we've talked a lot about, or not a lot about, but we've talked about the old Burying Point Cemetery, which we already discussed was the oldest cemetery in the country. Uh, or sorry, oldest cemetery in Salem, but the second, second. oldest in the country. Mm-hmm. So there's numerous apparitions that walk around there. So we talked about the judge already. There's also been, believe it or not, a lady in white. Another, Another one? one? Another one. Or the same one. Maybe she just she's, goes around. She's just, she, well, she travels. <laughs> so she seems to appear great quite often there, although she's quite camera shy. And so there's very little, but little physical or photographic evidence of her manifestations. So it's kind of one of the things where you see this woman in white, you try to take her picture and your camera don't work. Well, and how often do you actually see an apparition and they're there longer than half a second? Blink of an eye. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's a rare thing. So Mary Bright Corey's also seems to be hanging out there. So she died in 1684. She was the second wife of Giles Corey. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) She seems to be hanging out there as well. So the Corey's... Seem to haunt two separate cemeteries. So there's also, uh, they've had mysterious shadows, emanating lights, orbs, white mists. And then the people have caught apparitions there, but not necessarily the lady in white. A few years back, a man by the name of Mike was visiting the cemetery. And he had a, you know his own experience. He said, I saw it peeking out of the ground. He, he said, as he described what he captured with his camera, he claimed that the apparition was in front of one of the gravestones gravestones and it looked very strange torso wearing a suit and tie mutton chops shoulder length hair or shoulder height coming out of the ground interesting yeah i've never heard that yeah i've never heard of them like half in the ground peeking out yeah who goes there (laughs) (laughs) so who's interrupting my sleep right exactly like just kind of like sitting up at the waist type of deal who does disturb my slumber? <laughs> Tell me now. <laughs> so, interesting enough, Mike's story of someone coming out of the ground isn't the only one there. So, there were two young friends that were that went into the cemetery at night. And as they were walking around the graveyard, they saw something that would not they would not soon forget. What they saw was a shadowy apparition rising from the ground right in front of a gravestone. Okay, can I please see this? I would love right? to see this. I mean... I would be all for that. That would be like the best ghostly experience ever. So we need to go to a cemetery and just set up cameras all around and just sit there and wait. I mean, honestly, let's do it. <laughs> right? That that would be super cool. It would be really fun. Like I mean, we have done some cemetery I mean, up in Wyoming. We have, yeah, in Wyoming, we had some pretty dang good experiences just Hanging out right there. Yeah. Like, that was so cool. That was awesome. I just think that if we actually set up cameras and investigation equipment mm. in, like, a, a public cemetery after dark, 
I it wonder might how, look a little weird. I wonder how long before the cops showed up. Well, yeah. We have options. We do. We do. So one of the things that people believe kind of leads to this, you know, feeling of ominous in the graveyard is there are lots of what they call death head tombstones. And so what they are is they're a skull with wings. Okay, we've seen that. Yep. And under the under the the death head, there's a phrase that says "memento mori," which loosely translates to "remember death." Hmm. Why would you want to remember that? Right. I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> so why not remember life? Right. Maybe it's you know it's obviously it's for the living, right? Remember that we're all going into that. Remember, we're all going to die. Like, <laughs> that's, who wants to be reminded of that? I mean, <laughs> that's so friendly. That's so nice. That's of so them. inviting. So, and people say that they get cold sensations, and then in the you know in the daylight and the, as the sun's coming up in the daylight hours, they said that you know that you're standing amongst the ghosts, the lost souls of an era filled with terror. Very poetic, I should say. <laughs> And remember, you're gonna die. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what the that's what the grave, gravestones tell you. <laughs> We're all gonna die. So we started with um, talking about hocus pocus, and um, I have one about that. So on 318 Essex Street, just picture this in your mind: a white, stark colonial, asymmetrical, two-story house with gables. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Yes. No. Well, rude. <laughs> you may recognize the Ropes Mansion from the Disney classic Hocus Pocus. Uh-huh. So this place has been mobbed, modernized, and reutilized. So, and in this house, one person has succumbed to smallpox. Another person has been has caught fire. So this is the Ropes Mansion. Okay. It was built by Samuel Bernard in the late 1720s. And um, in 1839, Abigail Ropes met her tragic ending. Abigail's dress had ignited from the mansion's fireplace and her petticoats went up in flames. That is awful. Yeah. So, and she didn't succumb right then. Um, Abigail died a, a little bit later. Um, but it says in her official obituary, obituary that Abigail um, succumbed to a distressing illness of three weeks caused by her clothes accidentally taking fire. Three weeks. Okay, we know that when we get a burn on our hand or something, that hurts so bad unless there's like ice on it yeah. 24-7. Can you imagine your dress catching on fire and you have to deal with that for three weeks without having the things that we have to alleviate that pain? That is so miserable. That is awful. Miserable. Couldn't do it. And you got to imagine like... She didn't really have a choice. No. Well, right. You know? But I mean, in today's day and age, when oh. we have things to help. Yeah. 
and then to choose not, not to, to, yeah, I couldn't do it. Mm-mm. Yeah, that would be brutal. And I would imagine that part of the petticoats and stuff like that, because it was a lot of clothing. It is that they'd have to wear. I would imagine that a lot of it fused to her skin. Ew. Well, and that's a lot of clothing to put out. Yeah, when it's lit. So, ugh. so her nickname was Nabby, and Nabby allegedly haunts the Ropes Mansion. And reports of her apparition um, have been reported throughout the history of the house. So um, visitors to the Ropes Mansion claim that they can hear sounds of her agonizing screams. And um, there are accounts of the mansion's gardens being haunted. And visitors claim to feel that the icy touch of an unseen spirit or hear the whispers of disembodied voice. Um, so there was a, a man that worked the grounds and he worked there until he died. So they're saying that it could possibly be him because he was just so, he just loved the garden so much. He worked there until he died. Yeah. I can, I I can imagine like people doing that because they, they've fallen in love with the area so much that, you know, they tend to stick around quite a bit. And so you kind of get that. You know, that that love of place that people yeah. would stay around. Yeah. Although, like, why would he be touching people? Well, I mean, when you're, like, tapping them, you're like, hey. Oh, that's true. I'm here. <laughs> you know. That's true. Like, a lot of people don't necessarily think of that. Like, you get touched and you're like, that's freaky. Yeah. And it could just be like, hey. I- they're just trying to have you acknowledge that they're there. They're I- letting you know. I mean, how boring would it be if you're in the area and nobody acknowledges you? That would suck. You know, that would be miserable. Nobody likes to be forgotten. No. No, and and why not pick up some fun while you're at it? Just go. <laughs> Have a little fun with it. Come right? <laughs> you got to entertain yourself somehow. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, got to have fun with someone you know, along the lines. So there's a bookstore there that's haunted. It's called Wicked Good Books. Yeah, that's cute. I like it. So it didn't always used to be Wicked Good Books. It used to be the Derby Square Bookstore. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 2013, it got renovated into what it is today. So the interesting thing about this bookstore is that it's connected to it a series of underground tunnels. Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm always fascinated by those underground tunnels. Right? right? Yes. Well, you have like the Ogden tunnels. Uh-huh. You've got the Shanghai tunnels in Portland. Mm-hmm. Like there's all of these. Even in Seattle. Yeah. There's the, the Seattle underground. I'm sure there's yeah. there's so many tunnels. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times like the tunnels were used because like anything underground, it's easy to, to store goods. I mean, root cellars and stuff were because of that, right? They were keep things safe underground constant temperature and they're cool yeah so these ones on the other hand though are a little bit different christopher john luke dogwin he he hypothesizes that the tunnels history in salem was history of the tunnels in the city so it's a book he he wrote it's from the various wharves goods were smuggled through trap doors into the tunnels that led to the merchants and ship captains homes the tunnels he suspects stored merchandise that was later relocated to the shop fronts of Essex. So there were smugglers tunnels, is what he was mm-hmm. saying. Believe it or not, like 
there were a lot of privateers in Salem, which we all know the name for a privateer. The other name for a privateer is pirate. Oh, yeah. He's a pirate. He's a pirate. Dogwin likewise believes that the underground system was built in 1801 by the son of Elias Haskett Derby, post-revolutionary merchant of Salem. Fun fact about him, he was America's first millionaire. Wow. He was also a privateer. Uh, well, <laughs> surprise. He had the subterranean space that allowed him to bypass the tariffs imposed by President Jefferson. The tunnels may have additionally assisted senators, congressmen, and Supreme Court justices in tax evasion. <laughs> Amongst other things. Yes. So the, the underground system was a shoe-in for smugglers, and, they, and they've been connected to the Secretary of the Navy. So that goes pretty high up yeah, in that avenue. So he also suspects that the subterranean system is haunted. Now, this is where we get into the high classification of haunting and the high proof. He's like, I barely lifted my cell phone from from its case on my belt when the phone flew 25 feet into an open manhole. What? Yeah, the manholes are connected to the underground tunnel. Uh So he picks up his phone. He takes it out. You know, remember the old... Belt cases you Oh, yeah. Wear. I totally had a nerdy <laughs> belt case. <laughs> yes. So he picked up his phone. It says he picks up his phone. It flies out of his hand 25 feet. That's quite the distance. That's quite the distance into a manhole. He didn't throw it on accident. And that's pretty darn accurate to go into a manhole. Yeah. I mean, it's like throwing something across the table into somebody's mouth like perfectly. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, a, like an assorted that. dehydrated marshmallow bit. <laughs> Which I mean, just random thought. Random, th- <laughs> random thought. That never happens before like, no. a podcast is recorded. No. <laughs> Those things don't happen. No. He adds that his batteries in his electronic device was mysteriously drained while near the wharf. And there were orbs. <laughs> Those orbs. They yeah, they, are, they, they show up all the time. But seafarers have, are spotted as full-body apparition, apparitions aimlessly ambiating Derby Wharf. So the visitors report cold spots near the tunnels, as well as other signs of supernatural activity, such as sounds of disembodied voices and footsteps. Sounds exciting. Yeah. So <laughs> it, a lot of this sounds residual, though. It yeah. does. And that's it the does. thing with, with this, is that they're all very similar. The haunts are very similar. That they're... A lot of orbs. <laughs> yeah, a lot of orbs. A lot of walking... Um, disembodied voices disembodied voices and you know i mean that i guess does encompass ghost hunting in general it does um but when it's the same and they're saying the same thing in every place you know yeah but let's try this one the ghosts of the salem inn so um the salem inn also known as the West Cogswell House was built in eight, in 1834 by Nathaniel West, and West was one of the sea captains and merchants in Salem. The house would later become home to Union Civil War General Williams Cos- Cogswell. Cogswell would go on to serve as the 16th mayor of Salem and then later elected again as the 19th mayor. So over the 30 years... Over 30 years ago, the dilapidated West House 
found new life at as the Salem Inn. The Pabich family came to Salem from Norwood in 1983 looking for a property to invest in, not knowing that they were about to find their calling as innkeepers. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. So let's go to the ghosts of the room 17. Okay. So room 17 of the Salem Inn is perhaps the most haunted room in the inn that the inn has to offer. But who is it haunted by? That is, in itself, a mystery. The ghost of room 17 is believed to be a woman. Some have dubbed her Elizabeth, perhaps a reference to Nathaniel West's wife, who famously divorced him for his affairs. Although, offers refer, uh, offers, others refer to the spirit as Catherine. According to a psychic who, who visited Salem Inn, she claims that room 17 is indeed haunted, haunted by the ghost of a woman who was killed by her husband. This betrayal by her husband has led her spirit, her spirit's ill treatment of any man who stays in the room. Usually when a man does spend the night in 17, she becomes, she'll become quite active in order to disrupt their sleep. She achieves this by causing loud noises in the closet and stomping around the room. So that's different. It is different. That sounds more... And this sounds more legit, right? Yeah. But don't fret as there is supposedly a way to win favor with her. It has been said that if you leave a tumbler of whiskey or any alcohol for that matter, she just may leave you to restful night of sleep. So she likes to drink. (laughs) (laughs) She's demanding. She's making noise because she wants a drink. She's just here for the booze. Yeah, right. The second spirit isn't so much of who as it is believed to be a ghost of a cat. (laughs) How perfect. How perfect is this? The last of this spirit triangle is to believe a ghost of a child. The staff have said that they have heard the sound of a child giggling at times when there was no word, no kids staying in the inn. Moreover, some staff members have also heard light footsteps following them around in the inn. Footsteps so faint that they could only have been made by a child. But upon turning around expecting to see a kid in need of assistance, they are baffled by the discovery of nothing. A woman named Kathy stayed in the West House during the month of July back in 2012. The room she had booked was not 17, but 11. Apparently her encounter was with the ghostly cat. As she tells it, she was laying in bed trying to go to sleep when she felt a slight pressure on the bed, almost as if a small animal had jumped onto the bed. She claims the cat began to paw at her feet until she finally kicked it. Afterwards, she didn't experience the cat for the rest of the night. That's so rude. You kick a ghost cat. <laughs> How rude! Must Kitties. be a ghost cat. Honestly, like, <laughs> if I was laying in bed and there was a cat that jumped up and started purring and, and like, Mixing biscuits? <laughs> like, that'd be neat. That would be so cool. I mean, I'd be all for it. Yeah. So what's interesting is there's reports in, in theories that Salem is haunted by many cats. Okay, that just makes me want to go there just hearing that. But they claim it's haunted by many cats because, you know, witches have to have a cat with them. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Got your hopes up for a second, huh? <laughs> yeah, you did. 
Now, I, I don't doubt that there's probably lots of animal hauntings around. I mean, I've had a, ga- a, a cat around me at times, and it was while I had, and I think I've talked about this before on other podcasts, yeah. that, that it would jump up on the counter and try to drink my cat's water, and you could see the ripples in the water, and you could hear it lick the water. But there's no cat, and the water isn't disappearing. But you could see the ripples. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And we've had we've had issues. We've had hauntings. You know, our appearances from our past cats as well. And it's always so sweet. Yeah, it is. But I haven't been to a place had a random cat encounter. No. So it'd be neat, you know, to see that. Let's talk about the last place for tonight. It's called the Rockefellers, which makes me think of Rockefellers. The, yeah, the Rockefellers, the oil bar- the oil barons. That is not the case, and it's not even a historic landmark. This place, so it's actually uh, a restaurant, and it was built in two thousand three. So, you know why? You know what's the history around this place? So, it's actually. On the site of Salem's first church. Hmm. So it was constructed, sorry, it, it was originally constructed as a place of worship. The interesting thing is that it it was a fourth meeting house and is designed by Boston's Solemn Willard and Peter Banner. It is new incarnation. Its new incarnation was built right on top of the three preceding. Interesting. So they built multiple buildings on top of each other. Huh. Which seems to be kind of the, the lazy. par. <laughs> lazy. <laughs> it's called repurposing. No, lazy. <laughs> so once the building was completed in 1826, the church was used, the church used the second floor for their services and the fr- they rented out the first floor to local businesses to help kind of keep the cost down because they built a giant building. Yeah. So nearly 50 years later, around 1874, the building was remodeled into a Victorian Gothic style. Oh, that's cool. Which eventually became the home of a jewelry store for Daniel Lowe and Company. And then because they, they acquired it from the first the Salem's first church after they merged with the uh, Unitarian North Church. What's interesting about this is that it is connected also to the tunnels. I want to go in some tunnels. I do too. It'd be fun, Let's wouldn't go. it? Somebody let us go into some tunnels. Please. We have connections. We want in. That would be awesome. It'd be amazing. Like the Ogden Underground, like the Ogden Tunnels. I think they're all walled off though. But So they say. If they're walled off, can't you open them back up? I can. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> people who have walked around the, the Rockefellers have said they've got, wouldn't you know it, orbs floating around the second story window. <laughs> oh and let me guess. There's a woman in white. No. What? Not. Disembodied not, voices. That's impossible. There is. They actually have spotted a full body apparition of a man in a black suit. But not Johnny Cash. Oh, darn. So. It's a little bit before his time. It, well, bit, no. No, is this a newer building? This is 2003. It's after his it's time. It's after his time. Yeah. So, but it looks more like a minister, actually. 
And then the woman that's there is in an early 20th century blue dress. Ooh. Oh, not white, but blue. blue. But blue. So if you're ever downstairs in the vault, which is connected to the tunnels, you may hear her screaming in distress. Uh-oh. Why are the women always screaming? Because know. probably because they've been, usually they're screaming because they've been brutally murdered. Which is sad in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Which in this case, is the truth for her. So according to the legend, she was beneath the building in the tunnels waiting for her love, a sailor. When the sailor finally arrived, she informed him that she was with child and demanded the sailor marry her. Uh Uh-oh. We've heard a story like this before. Many. So while the woman loved the sailor, he did not feel the same way. In fact, he was a little bit uh, darker. He did not want to have the woman any longer and didn't want to be responsible for the child. So he, you know, made the right, not the right, good lord, I'm dark. (laughs) He made his reasoning and said, well, she's with child. I don't want her anymore. So I'm just going to kill her. Wow. Sad. That is sad. So another account of this blue lady is... She was an employee of the company, and she was working one late one night down in the tunnels, and she died. She just passed away. And I mean, she, she wasn't very old, though, right? No. So. Could be heart attack. Could be I mean, it's aneurysm. weird. It's just like she was working down there, and sh- she just died. Yep. And they didn't find her until the morning. Oh. So the lady in blue actually first started appearing you know, is a mystery because no one knows when the first sighting was. Mm-hmm. But the first confirmed sighting was not long after the Rockefellers opened in 2003. Hmm. So now the black, that the, the black suited man, the minister. Mm-hmm. So he said to have been a minister who was severely depressed and committed suicide on the grounds. So. You know, obviously, because there was the church there before and everything else. And so he must have been the minister of one of the churches. And he, you know, suffered from depression and committed suicide. So that's who they believe he is. Hmm. No name associated to him. Right. Which you'd think if a minister committed suicide in town, that they would have like, some type of documentation of, of that. Yeah. Exactly. So since the place opened, staff and customers alike have encountered the minister. The ghost is usually described as wearing a black suit and appearing quite somber. The interesting thing is he also doesn't like the living. Oh, surprise, surprise. So he's (laughs) awful, very rude and grumpy. So the women scream and the men are grumpy. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Sounds stereotypical, right? Like, are we just stereotyping ghosts now? I mean, why not? But (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always a woman in a dress Some sort of dress, usually white Usually white Some cases blue, some cases black But always always a dress Always a dress A gown And men are usually in suits and grumpy Yes Mm -hmm. They have like a top hat or Mutton chops Yeah (laughs) (laughs) Or soldier's uniform Yep, or soldier's so I, I think we covered a pretty good swath of of Salem, and it, the crazy part is I think we only scratched the surface. Oh yeah, I'm sure there is yeah. so much more. 
That's why it'd be so fun to go because just the tales are fun and the stories that people have, but I'm sure it's like all over. Oh, I'm All sure. over that area. I mean, it's yeah. an old part of the United States. 400 years old. Yeah. And so, counting. So, I mean, granted, that's not very old considering for a country, but that's still old for us. Yeah. And so there's going to be some good stories that are to be had over there. Right. right. Well, and also, like, you know, you still have the indigenous people there, too. Uh-huh. So, like, you have all of their history in wars and stuff. Like, right. if you look at the East, there's a there was a heavy concentration of tribes there. Mm-hmm. And things weren't always peaceful. So, you'd have their their wars and stuff. And plus, you also have their famine and their, their issues. So, it would be just neat to be able to experience all of that history. I would love to go see the old headstones. Yeah. I would too. That would be fascinating. Yeah. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. Like we've had, we have old ones here in the West, but, but not that old. But and a lot of ours are are made out of sandstone, and so you can't really read what they say on them because they've deteriorated so much from the weather. Or yeah. they used wood, which it's still around, but you, again, it's just a. a right. It, it looks yeah. like a popsicle stick sticking in the ground. Right. right? It does. Yeah. So yeah, it's just neat. Like. As a as an investigator, like I feel a little on the I don't want to say gyp side, but it, it jealous side I think is probably more accurate. Like the 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 founding history of this country, all right. of the old haunted stuff is all out east. Yep. And they have like annual haunting tours of of mansions and of plantations and things like that. That would be really fun to Yeah. Go see. Add it to the list. Myrtle Plantation. The list. Yes. The list never ends. Myrtle would be awesome. Yep. So we've kept you guys enthralled, hopefully, long enough. So we're going to let you all rest for the evening. But before we let you all go, where can they find us? I don't know where. On Facebook, you can find us at Cold Spot Paranormal Research. And on Instagram, you can find us on coldspot underscore paranormal underscore research. And at Twitter, at CPR Paranormal. And you can f- also find us on Facebook at, at Paranormal Peeps Podcast. Yes, you can. And as always, stay ghosty, my peeps. So it's it's not that <laughs> Got one more. <coughs> we need a double. There you go. Okay, thank you. Darby, everybody. (laughs) That is going into the outtakes, folks. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Paranormal Peeps podcast. 
you can find us on social media at Twitter at CPR Paranormal, on Facebook at Paranormal Peeps Podcast, and Cold Spot Paranormal Research. And you can find us on Instagram at Cold Spot underscore Paranormal underscore Research.